the Gospel according to Mark chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. The Word says this, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch Him in His words. They came to Him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. We're going to look at three kind of steps through this passage to help us get at what is happening. We're going to look at the con. Jesus is being conned. He's being deceived. He's being set up. There's a trap being laid for him. We're going to start with that. Then we're going to look at the challenge of the question they ask and why it's challenging and what Jesus is going to be forced to do with it. And then finally, we'll look at the conviction that Jesus brings to his questioners. So let's look at this con first. Uh, we're told that they sent some Pharisees and Herodians. Who are they? We have to go just a little bit back in the context. If you were here last week, you may remember. But uh, Jesus was being questioned. You can see this beginning in verse 27 of chapter 11. He's being questioned in the temple courts by chief priests and teachers of the law and elders of the people of Israel. And so we're told at the end that they want to kill him. And this is one of the first steps they take in order to get the things into motion necessary to get Jesus dead. And this question is going to be it. So we have two groups that are sent, the Pharisees and the Herodians. And they came to catch Jesus in his words, we're told. Now, in AD 6, so 6 AD, we're probably here in the life of Jesus, if this is the last year of his life, which we presume it is, uh, 33 AD. So we're talking, what, can I do math, 27 years previous to this. The Romans had been requiring the Jewish people since AD 6 to pay an annual tribute and it had to be paid in the emperor's silver coinage. Now, we don't know who the Herodians were. There's no historical evidence as to that group. But King Herod was the one the Romans had put in charge of this area of the Roman Empire, and King Herod was tasked with collecting the tribute. So we can only imagine that Herodians are those who supported or worked with or helped King Herod. That's an assumption, but it's a good one. So we don't know who the Herodians were, but their name implies that they had a stake in collecting the annual tribute. So, whoever sent these folks to Jesus made sure they were there when the question was asked. The Pharisees, as a more conservative and nationalistic group within Judaism, would have likely opposed the tribute to varying degrees. Some of them probably thought it to be idolatrous even to have the coins. Others were probably against paying tribute out of some idea of piety or faithfulness to God. And there were some who were extreme, they were called zealots, who refused to pay the tribute at all. So this is a huge watershed issue in the day of Jesus. If he supported that annual tribute, the Pharisees would have used it against him to tell the people that he was a Roman collaborator. If he had stood against the annual tribute, the Herodians who were there would have most certainly reported that to King Herod or perhaps to the Romans directly. And that would have made Jesus a traitor to the Roman Empire and would have put him at risk for the charge of treason. And they butter him up along those lines. Did you catch that phrase? T 
Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. This is verse 14. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. We know you don't care who your audience is. We don't. We know that you don't care that if what you say gets you in trouble. We know you're going to speak the truth no matter the consequence. But they're setting him up. They're hoping he answers this one honestly because there is no way he gets out of this without a noose. You see, the con is that Jesus' answer should have been able to have been used against him no matter what it was. There was no answer that he could have escaped unscathed with unless he avoided the question altogether. At least that's what they thought. So that's the con. And here's the challenge. Here's the question. Verse 14, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now we know something's up right away because they want a yes-no answer. And anytime somebody wants a yes-no answer, they're not very interested in the why. But despite the trap and the way this question is framed, it is a legitimate question and a serious issue in Jesus' day and one that was theologically and religiously loaded. Not only did the tribute represent Roman oppression for many Jewish people, it was also inscribed with the claim that Augustus Caesar, the present Caesar in Jesus' day was Tiberius Caesar, the coin said that Augustus, his father, was divine. He's called divine Augustus, so he is godish. And therefore, Tiberius, his son, would then be semi-divine. So for some Jewish people in Jesus' day, it was blasphemous even to hold the money, let alone to pay the tribute. Beyond that, tied up in this debate was the question of the relationship faithful Jewish people were to have with the Roman government. What did they owe the Romans? This was a hornet's nest no matter which way Jesus stepped. And yet it still was a question that needed to be addressed. The con was that no matter what Jesus said, he'd be in hot soup. The challenge was for Jesus to address a significant social issue wrought with ideological peril and bound to be misunderstood in some meaningful and helpful way. So here's what Jesus does with it. I'm calling this the conviction. We're told in verse 15 that Jesus knew their hypocrisy. I want to define the word hypocrisy because the way we use it today is to say that you're a hypocrite if you say you believe one thing, but you do another. That's what we think the word means. But in Je and we get the word hypocrite from the Greek word that's here, which is why it's translated that way. But we have to be aware that in Jesus' day, the word hypocrite, or in Greek, hypocrites, did not mean somebody who said one thing and did another. It was the Greek word for actor, performer, and so what Jesus is saying here, the text does not say that Jesus knew that these folks were not really good Jews. It's not saying that, they, that Jesus knew they didn't really love God. He's not saying that Jesus knew that they were pretending to be pious, but in truth, they were living all kinds of willy-nilly, wild, lascivious stuff. It's not saying that at all. The text is saying that Jesus knew they were putting on a show. That the question was a performance. That they were not interested in his response. Jesus recognized that their question was insincere. 
Because they don't want to know why he thinks what he thinks. They don't want to hear his reasoning or his argumentation. They just want yes, no. And, and they need it to be yes, no, because their intention is to crucify him with it. So Jesus realizes the way the question is phrased, the way they come to him, the groups that are there, this is obviously a setup. So you'd think that he would just kind of bow out. But Jesus' response to my reading, it's not evasive at all. He doesn't avoid the issue. In fact, it's penetrating. It's ingenious. He finds this other way that's unimaginable to the people who are questioning him. And he begins by asking for a coin, which is a great moment because it means he wasn't carrying one. That should have pleased the Pharisees and any Jewish observers who believed the coins bordered on idolatry. Then Jesus asked them what was on the coin. And then he revealed what God's concern in these sorts of human behaviors really is. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. Where is God's image? Look at Genesis chapter 1 beginning in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So where is the image of God in this world? Is it on gold or silver? He's imprinted His image on us. The United States, Caesar, whatever nation is in rule, may own the coinage. But God has stamped His image on us. It's more or less Jesus saying, whatever you do with Caesar's money is between you and Caesar. but make sure you pay God's tribute, which comes from those that bear His image. So what is the tribute? Look back at Mark 12. Just in a few weeks, we're going to be talking about the passage that answers that question. It's in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And the story we find is that one of the teachers of the law came and... Uh, Ask Jesus which is the most important of the commandments. And Jesus says this in verse 29. The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And then they go in. And when the man says, that's right, that's what the law is all about, Jesus says to him, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. What is the tribute that God would have us give back? We're all caught up in how much of my money I have to give to the government. And God says, whose money is that? So they get to say what to do with it. But let me tell you what you'll never get away with, and that is giving my tribute to anybody else. And what is the tribute God requires? The context insists it is that we love God with all that we are, and that we love our neighbors as ourselves. This is what God requires of those who bear His image. This is the tax that must be paid. He's concerned about what tribute you pay to Him, not to Caesar. Now, I want to define a word. 
the word love. Love is a choice for, biblically. Hate is a choice against. So God will say in the book of Malachi, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. To choose for is love. So bound up in love biblically is this idea of loyalty. So, so we see God's love poured out for us. I don't know what God feels for you or me. I hope it's pleasant, but he doesn't tell us much about those things. What he tells us is that he loves us, and what he means is I'm loyal to you. I made a commitment to you as a people from the beginning as your creator, and then as your savior, and I will not back off from that choice. I will not be disloyal to the covenants I've made with you. I love you. And what God asks in tribute, in response from us, is that we repay His loyalty with loyalty of our own. That we choose Him and remain loyal to Him above all other things. So He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. In the Hebrew, mind is added in the Greek, but in the Hebrew it's just the first three. The tribute God wants is our loyalty to Him. And our loyalty to our neighbors. That we would be as loyal to the needs of our neighbors as we are loyal to our own needs. This is what it means to love. And this is the tax God requires. This is the tribute. You can waste all your time arguing about who gets this paper. But what God is concerned about is your loyalty. So could this be wrong to pay? Of course it could. If this indicates some sort of loyalty above all else to the one who collects it. But Jesus is not really concerned with the money or where it goes. What he's concerned with is whether or not you as a being made in the image of God are paying the tribute you owe to the one who marked you with his image. The same way the government requires us to pay back to them out of what they've marked with their image. And the tribute he wants is our loyalty to him above all else. We can pay Caesar's tribute, but we cannot say Caesar is Lord. And that's what the early church did. They said, Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Here are three applications quickly that I think come from this passage. First, the only tribute that concerns God is the one that would require us to withhold from Him the tribute we owe. Anything that would prevent us from showing God the loyalty of loving Him with all of our heart and soul and strength, any decision we would make that would put our loyalty to ourselves above and against the loyalty we have to those who are our neighbors, who are in need, anything like that is a tribute that concerns God. It becomes idolatrous. Second, yes-no questions typically have no interest in understanding. If we're as loyal to the people with whom we disagree as we are to our own beliefs, we will be as interested in their explanations and provide as much time to hear them as we would give ourselves permission to speak on our own behalf about our own opinions. Third, God does not desire to serve as an excuse to justify anything we simply don't want to do. 
They didn't want to pay the tax. So they looked for a religious reason not to, and they put God on the hook for their decision. Jesus takes the whole thing away. What he wants is that we love him, we show loyalty to him, we choose him above all other things, and we show the same loyalty to our neighbors as we show to ourselves in all that matters. This is God's tax. It's a weird way to use it. We don't like the word taxes. But Jesus introduced it with that story of the, the workers in the vineyard just previously. So again, I turn us to John chapter 21. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter answers first like a human. I love you. Jesus says, do you love me? And what is happening there is that Peter had proven already that he was not loyal to Jesus above all else. That his life mattered more to him than his loyalty to Jesus. Because on the night Jesus was being tried and eventually would be crucified the next morning, Peter was asked three times if he knew Jesus. And he disowned him. He denied knowing him because he was fearful for his life. And so Peter reveals that whatever other loyalty he had to Jesus, there was one loyalty he had above all else, and it was to his own survival. And Jesus, by asking Peter three times to confess his love, the same way he had denied Jesus three times, tells us, more or less, all who would follow him, your loyalty must be to me above all else, even your own survival. If we were to ask Jesus that question, what would you have me do? He would say, I would have you die, rather than break faith with me. Do you love him? He doesn't need your longing. He needs your loyalty. And this is what it means to follow Jesus.